Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 529, and I'm your friendly neighborhood, amazing agent M, aka Ryan Panagos. I lost it there. I was like, I want to do a Spider-Man thing, and what's my name? And I'm the spectacular Lorraine Sink. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. It's a big week. It's the biggest week ever. It is... Spider-Man week because Spider-Man No Way Home is now in theaters. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about so much stuff. If you are just joining us or if you've been with us for all our episodes, you know that this is the show where we talk about everything that's happening this week in Marvel from games, comics, movies, TV, and really whatever we're excited about. Lorraine, tell me something cool. I have not seen Spider-Man No Way Home. No spoilers in this episode. But no, if Ryan no, spoils no. this for me specifically, I will physically fight him. And I know that we're remote, but I will find a way. How often do I spoil things for you? Not very often, unless I ask. Never, unless you ask me to specifically spoil it. And even then I'm like, I really don't want to do that. The experience of seeing it so good, so incredible so there's a recency bias. You know, when you when you see something and you're like all swept up in it and you're like, oh, my gosh, everything's amazing. So I am still 12 hours from ish from seeing the movie for the first time. By the time everybody hears this, I'll have seen it three times. But the first time <laughs> it may be my favorite movie of all time. High praise. It's up there. It's really that great. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm very excited to see it. Of course, if you guys want to watch the red carpet premiere coverage presented by Marvel Unlimited, it's over on the Marvel YouTube channel or marvel.com. Definitely go check it out to see all the star-studded footage from the night. But you'll just have to go see it in theaters. And, you know, take Ryan's advice. Do not spoil this movie for people. I know you're going to be very tempted to go over to the internet and say, do you know what happens at the end? Crazy. But, like, please don't. Don't do that. When you're leaving the theater, please don't start casually talking about spoilery details as people are milling about in the theater who maybe are about to go into the movie. I've, oh. I've heard that happen. I've seen that happen. Oh, the worst. Oh, man. One, it's an experience I think everyone should have as best they can to go in and just enjoy it and, and live through it and, and watch it. And it's so good. But also, hopefully you can go and you feel comfortable going to the theater to see it. It's going to be so amazing to sit with your friends and your family and, and people around you and cheer and, and get excited. So, yeah, Spider-Man No Way Home. I can't wait for everybody to put their eyeballs all over it and let it into their hearts. In the spirit of Mr. Spiderman, I got to wonder what it would be like to like maybe swing through a city like he does so maybe we could talk to a spider silk expert. Ooh, that's a great idea. Why don't we call Dr. Randy Lewis, who is an expert on spider silk? He's a biologist who studies spider silk and he studies how to reproduce it with the same strength and elasticity. So that would be pretty cool. Yeah, he's the perfect person to call. Let's dial up the twin phone. All right. Beep, boop, boop, boop. Ring, 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 ring. Doctor phone. Ring, 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 ring. Hello. Oh, hi, it's Ryan and Lorraine from This Week in Marvel. Hi, how are you guys? We're Doing great. great. We are excited to talk about spider silk and really get into the nuts and bolts of Spider-Man and his webbing. Now, how strong is spider silk? How elastic is it? So spider silk is about five times stronger than steel. And depending on which silk you get, so the least elastic silk is about 10%, but the most elastic silk is almost 200%. So it'll stretch twice its length. My gosh. Wow. Now, over at Marvel, we always talk about Spider-Man having the proportional strength and speed and, and abilities of a spider. And then going along with that, we talk about Spider-Man's webbing. But thinking about what you've just told us, is Spider-Man's webbing really strong and stretchy enough to support Spider-Man, who's probably like 100 and probably close to 200 pounds because he's all muscle, mm -hmm. to support Spider-Man and help him swing through the city? Yeah, without a doubt. We had a question fairly early on from uh, actually a kid's program about, you know, the various feats that the Silk has done in the various movies. So take the movie where he stops the train. So we went through that fairly carefully and looked and asked the question, you know, sort of how much silk did he use? How many did he stick to the walls of the buildings as it was going? You know, how fast was the train going? How much does a normal train weigh? Add all the people in for the weight. 
did he have enough silk? And the answer is, in fact, he did. Wow. He actually had a three times safety factor in there. So he could have either had the train weigh three times as much or being going three times faster than he did. And part of that was that, that you know, he put a lot of silk against the walls to be able to add it up. But yeah, so uh, he certainly has no trouble supporting his own body and he could actually stop that train in real world. Wow. So obviously Spider-Man, you know, in most iterations of Spider-Man, he doesn't have real webs that shoot out. He has a web shooter that he creates these webs and those webs dissolve after, you know, an hour or two, which is convenient because otherwise when he wrapped up criminals, they'd be stuck there forever. But how long does spider silk last? Does it dissolve? Yeah. So what we know is that obviously out in the wild, it doesn't last forever. But if you're able to to very carefully store it. And so the best example we have of that is that a museum case in a museum in London, some 243 years ago, I think, A spider was trapped in there when they enclosed the whole thing in the glass case, and it spun a web. And in fact, the web has not changed shape as much as the glass in the glass case. So in 240 years, but you can actually see in some pictures, you can see that the glass has just started to sag a little bit, and the web has not. The web looks virtually identical in, in the photos that have been taken in the last, what, 170, 180 years. What we think is, is that there probably are out there a lot of fungi that destroy everything, but that's probably the main sort of, of way it gets degraded is through fungi out in the environment. I think that's probably a feature that Spider-Man has built into his webbing because <laughs> if, if he built it the same way that spiders do, they probably would be having webs everywhere for probably a couple <laughs> days. Uh, so part of your work, as we understand it, is trying to actually recreate spider silk with the same strength and elasticity. How do you do that? And how close are Lorraine and I to being able to get some artificial spider silk to pretend to be Spider-Man? You can give it to us. We are happy to take mm-hmm. it and test it out. <laughs> we won't jump off buildings, though. Or at least I won't. Yeah. <laughs> so what we know is, is that, that we learned very early on that spider silk is made of a protein like your hair, your skin, and most of your body. But it's clearly a, a unique structure compared to those proteins. And so we're able to study that protein, but somehow you have to be able to create large amounts of the material and hopefully at at some kind of a reasonable price. So you can't farm spiders. They have two personality defects. They're both cannibalistic and they're territorial. So if you put a bunch of spiders together, you'll either end up with nobody left alive or you'll end up with one spider. You, You can't practically collect that. So what we've done is take the gene that makes the protein for that silk. And we've put it in a variety of organisms. And so we've put it in in bacteria, we've put it in alfalfa, we've put it in goats, and we've put it in silkworms. And so that's what we use. And so for a long time, we used the material from the goats and we still do some of that. But what we found is, is that if you wanna make fibers to use, then the material that we get from the, the transgenic silkworms is actually the best. So we can make silkworms that produce cocoon silk that's about 50 to 60 percent spider silk and that material is is actually as good as the native dragline silk so so we made a a little rope from some of this transgenic spider silk and hung a guy off of one of the arches in the canyonlands national park and uh, if you get a chance you'll have to take a look at the video because i can tell you what the guy is scared (laughs) <laughs> he, he, you know, he tested it all on land before he went out there to convince him. But, you know, he was 600 feet from the ground and on a one foot piece of spider silk rope. But, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, if, if we're looking to the future for fibers and things like that, um, the silkworms are going to be the way to go. Well, I definitely would like to see spider goat show up in the Marvel Universe or a spider silkworm. I'll take any of them, but I don't blame that guy for being scared. I would be too. Thank you so (laughs) much, Randy, for taking our call. Uh, We'll let you get back to your serious science business. All right. Well, thank you much. Oh, man. Thank you so much, Dr. Randy Lewis. Very informative. Very cool. 
please don't eat the spiders. I know that's a thing that you probably want to do because who doesn't want to eat a spider? Yum, 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 yum. Gross. All right. Moving on. We have got more great stuff going on, especially on Disney Plus. Marvel Studios Hawkeye episode five is here. Oh, my gosh. It's almost the season finale. You can watch it now only on Disney Plus. And of course, if you have not yet, go shop those Marvel must haves, you know, all those cool products inspired by the series at marvel.com slash must haves. They have those ugly sweaters that Kate and Clint wear that are like the tea version. They have pizza dog socks and Funkos and pillows and all kinds of cute stuff. And tis the season to buy all the things you want. So go for it. And speaking of no spoilers, come on. This episode, do not spoil it for people, please. Stay off the internet if you don't want that spoiled, but watch it on Disney Plus and then yeah, get yeah, ready yeah. for the finale next week. Holy moly, just putting this all together, what a time for Marvel Studios awesomeness. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of which, Marvel Studios Eternals is also coming to Disney Plus. It'll be exclusively on Disney Plus January 12th of 2022, which is mm. just around the corner. We live in the future. The film's <laughs> going to join 13 other MCU movies now streaming in IMAX Enhanced on Disney Plus, which gives subscribers more picture with an expanded aspect ratio for an immersive viewing experience at home. Of course, if you're not in the U.S., content availability varies by region, but I love watching these films in IMAX. It's really cool. Definitely recommend it. So look out for that. And also, I have to say just on a personal note, Mm. the film Encanto is going to be on Disney Plus on December 24th. (gasps) And my friend Oscar Montoya is one of the voices in it. I can't wait to watch it on Disney Plus. Hmm. You know, we're talking about Marvel Studios Eternals. Now there is a gift guide for Eternal stuff on Marvel.com. You can find a ton of stuff from Legos to comics to games to Funkos and more. You can check it out on Marvel.com. And you can also see our This Week in Marvel holiday gift list while you're there from a previous episode. So you can check that out. There's also an ugly sweater holiday gift guide. Just go to marvel.com slash articles and scroll down to lifestyle and culture and you can see all the best stuff to buy for the holidays. You still got time. Yeah. And I believe there's a brand new Spider-Man gift guide that just came out. So definitely go over and look at all of the gifts ever. Also a gift unto us and everyone this year Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy the Game Awards happened and of course Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy won Best Narrative congratulations to Idos Montreal and the Marvel Games team and also another win um, Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy won IGN's picks for Best Action Game and Best Video Game Story of 2021 so a very big end of the year for Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy congrats to the team also in Marvel Games news Marvel Contest of Champions is welcoming Kraven the Hunter to the contest Uh, you know he has a constant failure to defeat Spider-Man which has led him to a path of villainy and insanity. And now he is in Marvel Contest of Champions. So definitely go check that out. Also coming to mobile games, Marvel Puzzle Quest Big Wheel has rolled into Marvel Puzzle Quest, which Ryan, I know makes you happy. God bless Marvel Puzzle Quest. God bless Big Wheel. God bless us all for the glory (laughs) that we can have this conversation, that we can say, Big Wheel has rolled into Marvel Puzzle Quest. I'm so excited for them to bring in characters that make me happy like this. It's so great. Both Marvel Contest of Champions and Marvel Puzzle Quest are bringing in new characters, new stuff all the time. So definitely go check those out on the App Store or on Google Play. Free to download. So go have fun with those if you haven't yet because they are a blast. The Marvel Contest of Champions is celebrating their seven-year anniversary with the Shindig of Champions. Is a really fun video up on their social pages right now with the various characters having a party and celebrating seven years. So it's pretty dang cool. Yeah, and they always have a bunch of awesome, unique content around their anniversary. So definitely go check them out. Perfect time to jump on the bandwagon and get into it. Man, the last like couple of months of this year, dynamite for Marvel mm-hmm. stuff. My goodness. Let's talk about more cool stuff like Marvel Dice Throne, which is from the mighty makers of Dice Throne, which 
is apparently this huge tabletop board game, which I didn't know about until the Marvel version, but it's a brand new card and dice game called Marvel Dice Throne. You can set it up very quickly. The games are fast. There's a ton of play modes, so it's easy to learn, endlessly fun for families and casual players and dedicated board game enthusiasts. So there's this version. It blew up on Kickstarter and has tons and Mm -hmm. tons of versions. There's different like a limited edition. There's a battle chest, a whole bunch of different ways you can dive into this. There's all kinds of ways you can purchase a copy of Marvel Dice Throne and uh, go to Marvel.com and you can check it out. We've got it on display over there. It's it's pretty cool. You know, I, this is my flipping jam. I know, Lorraine. I love a game that's kind of got this fun combo of like probability because you're rolling dice. Mm-hmm. And so you also have these cards and functionalities. So it definitely seems super duper fun and simple enough to play. Uh, with a lot of people, which is also great because I will sit and read all the instructions to a game and be the person who's like, okay, this is how we do this. But it seems like you can do that without the person who's obsessed with rules, <laughs> which is nice. Yes. Check out Marvel Dice Throne. They're in production right now, so you'll be able to get your hands on copies of the game for next year. Also, the finale of Marvel's Wastelanders Hawkeye is here. And also, it's available to everyone now. So even if you do not have Marvel Podcasts Unlimited or Sirius XM, you can now listen to all of the episodes over wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our interview last week with writer Jay Holtham which was conducted by the wonderful Angelique Rocher. And we'll have even more about Wastelanders coming out very soon. So be sure to subscribe to the Marvel Podcast Unlimited for exclusive and early content, as well as Sirius XM. You definitely want to go do that because you get the good stuff first. Yeah. Speaking of good stuff, let's talk about comics because there's a brand new Captain Carter comic series coming next year it's a five issue limited series written by sweet boy jamie mckelvey with art by marika cresta who's worked on star wars dr afra but jamie is if you don't know jamie was an amazing artist who's done young avengers he designed the captain marvel costume that is now iconic Mm -hmm. across the world yeah he's a great storyteller all around writer and artist so this is him being able to write do some covers and cool stuff and this is a reality where agent peggy carter took the super soldier serum instead of c rogers and the reality is turned upside down when the world war ii hero is pulled from the ice where she was lost in action decades before peggy struggles to find her footing in a modern world that's gotten a lot more complicated cities are louder technology is smarter and enemies wear friendly faces Everyone with an agenda wants Captain Carter on their side, but what does Peggy want? And will she have time to figure it out when mysterious forces are already gunning for her? Dun, dun, dun. Captain Carter is out on March 9th. That's the first issue. So it's going to be a hoot and a holler. And Jamie drew this really dynamite cover of Captain Carter popping out of a newspaper. It rules. It rules. It rules. It rules. Also on the comic front. There's going to be new Carnage series coming in March, a new Strange series coming in March, and I believe we'll be talking more about the Reckoning War and Fantastic Four stuff that's happening next year. That's a big Dan Slott storyline that he's been seeding for like 15 years, 16 years, something like that. It's wild. I reckon we will talk about it more. All right, moving on. (laughs) Free comic book day for 2022 is coming in the future and they have now announced that three free comic one shots are going to be available at participating retailers including free comic book day avengers slash x-men number one by kieran gillen as well as jerry duggan and artist dustin weaver and this is going to lay groundwork for an event that's going to erupt across the marvel universe in 2022 and drastically alter the relationship between the avengers and the mutant friends so we'll see how that goes we'll also have free comic book day spider-man venom number one which is going to offer fans the first glimpse at spider-man's new era and we're going to check in on some thought-provoking work from al ewing ram v and brian and Hitch, who are 
doing Venom. And then we're going to have Free Comic Book Day Marvel's Voices number one, which is going to be a unique introduction to the groundbreaking and critically acclaimed Marvel's Voices series, which spotlights creators and characters across Marvel's diverse and ever-evolving universe. So the book is going to include some new and popular Marvel's Voices stories, spotlighting creators and characters from different cultures, communities, and identities. Always a pleasure. And of course, these comics won't be coming until the first Saturday in May of 2022, but exciting announcements for spring coming up in the future. That's the same weekend that Marvel Studios' Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness releases. I think everybody's going to be excited for it. We'll talk about that plenty, plenty more next year. Cool piece of news that released this week is the launch of Marvel Arts. It's an exciting new graphic novel collaboration between Marvel Comics and Abrams Comic Arts. Uh, if you've heard us talk about Abrams before, they do a ton of great Marvel books, stuff for kids, stuff for people of all ages. And this is an original graphic novel written and drawn by Alex Ross. It is Fantastic yeah. Four Full Circle, the first one, and it's going to be really cool. It's a large format book. It's going to include a fold-out poster featuring an all-new fully painted origin of the FF by Alex. It's coming in August of 2022. It's the first graphic novel written and illustrated by Alex Ross in his 30 plus years doing comics, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's it's also the first graphic novel that Marvel's licensed to another publisher in over 40 years. So it's really, really cool. The quick breakdown of the story is that it's a, it's a rainy night in Manhattan and not a creature is stirring except for Ben Grimm. When an intruder suddenly appears inside the Baxter building, the Fantastic Four find themselves surrounded by a swarm of invading parasites. The creatures composed of negative energy come to Earth using a human host as a delivery system. But why? Who's behind this? And so the FF have no choice but to journey into the negative zone. So it's basically an awesome, beautiful, cool, big Fantastic Four negative zone adventure. I can't wait for this. I'm so excited. We just recently had some new painted stuff from Alex Ross. He did a Doctor Strange nightmare story that wrapped through a bunch of issues of the Marvel series. And it was so cool. So knowing that we're getting a full original graphic novel by Alex with FFN and the Negative Zone, I can't wait for this. All right, Ryan, we have one last piece of news. Dare I say the most important piece of news, obviously, of the week. Yes, w without question. So last week we had on Vice President of Business Development and Operations at Prop Store, Chuck Costas, and Creative Director of Marvel Themed Entertainment, Brian Crosby who helped us learn about the Marvel's The Punisher prop store auctions. And, and we talked about all the great stuff that was there. And I know a lot of people who, who won some great auctions. Well, we talked about the toilet. And guess what, everybody? We are now proud owners of yeah. the toilet. Lorraine, myself, and Marvel's The Polis producer, Jasmine Estrada. And Lorraine, I think we should bring Jasmine in to help us talk about it. Well, Jasmine is the most important piece of this puzzle because Jasmine put in the work. I, I think the only way that we can get to Jasmine because she's in Chicago is to flush ourselves there with Flushy, the twim toilet. Here we go. Flush, flush, flush. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's the twim toilet? Oh, I knew that was going to come up. Ooh. Whoa, well, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Now, Jasmine, I have to I have to say the toilet was discovered on Twim. But it was purchased on Pullist. See, Ryan came to me. He was like disheveled and mm -hmm. just absolutely upset. And That's he was true. like, hey, so like I really want to buy this toilet, but yeah. Twim, the Twim producers won't let me buy it. Hey, Marvelites. This is Zachary, this weekend Marvel producer. I'm making a rare appearance to say that on behalf of myself and my fellow producer Isabel, we never tried and never would try to stop Ryan and Lorraine from buying this toilet. This assertion by our fellow producer Jasmine is completely false. I'm literally shaking. Okay, back to programming. And I was like, <laughs> Not well, fully accurate, but yes. I'm the Pullis producer, and I say, yes, let's buy it. And I did the work, had to wait a solid 15 minutes before they allowed us, 15 minutes while the clock was ticking for the auction to end and made the account I had to get approved. And then with 25 seconds left on the clock was approved and purchased the toilet during pull list. All right. So mm -hmm. I guess this is a joint 
This Week in Marvel pull list venture. Why don't we make it the Marvel's podcast toilet? No, no, no. The the, the pull list potty. It's the pull list potty. Oh, <laughs> God dang it. Nope. <laughs> we have a toilet, everybody. All right. Well, thank you, Jasmine. I'm going to I'm going to flush you back to Chicago um, <laughs> through the magic. Wait, me? You guys are at my place now. <laughs> oh, OK. We're going to flush ourselves back. back. New York. Yeah, we're All flushing right, ourselves back. All right. It is time for our interview. And this week we have on the show Mr. Douglas Wolk author of All the Marvels, which is a really cool book because Douglas is a wonderful writer and journalist and awesome dude who has read 27,000 plus Marvel comics. He's read all the Marvels to put together this book. The book is great, and we had a great conversation with him. Check it out right now. Lorraine, I hope you are ready to talk about all 27,000 plus comics ever made by Marvel because we are doing that with our guest this week, Douglas Wolk. How are you, Douglas? Really happy to be here. What is your Marvel origin story? Obviously, you have been really inserted into the Marvel Universe over the last, I assume, years that you've been writing this book. But what is your Marvel origin story? So my Marvel origin story is back when I was about 10 years old, I've been, you know, picking up the odd comic here and there, you know, Green Lantern, Superman, Batman, whatever. The kid across the street from me had different comics. He had Moon Knight, he had Daredevil, and they were scary and they were weird and I didn't know what to make of them and I kept reading them and I really liked them. And then I picked up an issue of X-Men off a stand. It was X-Men 138. Not the super classic 137. 138 is the one where Cyclops spends the entire issue summarizing the plot of everything that had happened in the series up to that point. <laughs> and I was hooked. And then I just kind of kept going. Speaking of keeping going, you're here on the show to talk a little bit about your new book, All of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told, which is a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about what the book is and how you got to the task of reading over 27,000 Marvel comics? So I wanted to read everything Marvel had published, really, like since 1961, as a story, as a single story where every part connects to every other part and... It's 540,000 pages long, plus, but it is one story. This is a story so big that not even really any of the people making it have read the whole thing. You're not supposed to read the whole thing. And so I read the whole thing because I wanted to see what it looked like as kind of a history of the last 60 years of culture and what it looked like as a single incredibly complicated, incredibly strange piece of art. And then to be a guide to that, to people who are interested in exploring it some more. How long did it take you to read literally all of the Marvel comics? It took longer than I thought it would. I initially thought, okay, it's going to be two and a half years. That'll be enough time to read all the comics and then write the book. And six years later, here we are. I absolutely believe that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's a Herculean task, but it's a, I would hope, a very enjoyable one as you go on this journey. Was there anything that you learned? You know, you wanted to read this and experience this thing, this almost forbidden task, as you say. Is there anything you learned through this journey? So much. I guess the biggest thing was how much the Marvel story has always echoed the world around it at every stage from the beginning onwards. Not just direct topical references, but the way that the spirit of the moment is always, always, always present in comics from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and onward. And I am sure that 10 years from now, we'll be able to look at comics from 2021 and go, oh my gosh, that is such a 2021 comic. You know, it's interesting because you said you started by sitting down to read all of the comics. And I think one of the number one things that we get asked, like, where do we start? And it's sort of apt because you have one of your first chapters that's where to start or how to enjoy being confused. Yes. <laughs> um, so how do you recommend people start and where did you start? What I tell people in the book is start anywhere. Start with a book a friend thinks you would like. Start by going into a comic store or a library and just looking at the first pages of a couple things and seeing what grabs you. You don't have to start at the beginning. I strongly advise against starting at the beginning. <laughs> Too many people are like, okay, I'm going to start Fantastic Four number one. I'm going to read everything through in chronological. No, 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 no. That is 
a route that is not much fun, and this stuff is more than anything else supposed to be for fun and pleasure and enjoyment. Start with something that looks interesting to you, and you're not going to know everything. There's going to be stuff that confuses you, and that's fine. As long as you're entertained, it's fine that you're confused. Just keep note of the stuff that you're like, oh, I don't know what that name is. I don't know what the deal is with that planet that has a goatee. <laughs> I don't know why Hercules is doing that. But take note of it, because you can always explore more. You can jump forward in time. You can jump backward in time. You can jump sideways in the story. You have a time machine. You have a dimension hopping machine. You get to use them as a reader. You're not tied to the usual way of looking at a single narrative, because the Marvel story isn't a conventional single start-to-finish narrative. And that is the fun part. And as you read, you'll keep having like, oh, I get it now moments. And oh, I get it now moments. Like, they're kind of the best thing. Yeah, and I really like that part of the title of that chapter is How to Enjoy Being Confused. Because I think there is something that people get a little tripped up on when they say, well, I, I can't just jump into a story. It's issue 17. It's issue 430. It's issue 750. But that's part of, for many of us who had that experience like you had, Douglas, where it was just issue 138 of Uncanny X-Men. Wait, what? Who? What? And you get brought into this. I remember getting brought into a lot of those Claremont Burn issues at one point in my life or Avengers West Coast a little bit or Spider-Man or whatever it was and like having to backtrack. And then you go searching for comics and you go around those bends. When you were putting this together and talking with folks, was there a lot of like, yeah, but you have to start at number one conversation? What some people said was like, oh, I'm a completist or I'm a completionist. No, you don't have to. This can break you of that habit. Just start where it's fun and go where it's fun. Go where your impulses lead you. You get to be confused and then you get to be unconfused and you get to carry stuff around in your head and see where it all pays off. And the payoff just never, ever, ever stops. It's so interesting because it kind of reminds me of like when you watch a movie, you sit down and you don't know anything about the characters. You don't know what's going on. Like you spend the first 20 minutes being like, who are these people? What's happening? <laughs> and that's absolutely normal. But we sit down with a comic book and we're like, oh, no, I should know the origin story and where they came from and their dad's uncle's name. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's not quite that way. You don't need way. to be a gatekeeper for yourself. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's enough gatekeeping as it is. Like I say, like the only role that gatekeepers have in comics is keeping the gate wide open so anyone who wants to come join the fun can. But one thing that a lot of really clever comics writers do is explain stuff on the fly. There's not going to be somebody coming out and saying, this is who this character is. This is what their deal is. This is what their relationship is. But there may well be something that will tell you all of that in passing or just imply in a way that just give you enough information to go on. That happens a lot. Yes. Better writing and, and structure and, and stuff like that does help a lot. With all this talk in mind, like, who did you write this for? When you're putting the book together, do you think of new readers of comics, of Marvel comics? Do you think of old heads like us? Do you think of, of the kids? Who do you think of, you know, picking up this book and going through all of the Marvels? when I was writing it, and especially when I was revising it, and it was like trying to zero in on like, okay, who's my reader here? I wanted to make it most of all fun and engaging for somebody who was curious, who maybe saw some movies, maybe read a few comics, maybe read some comics a while ago, who had not read everything, but who was curious about what there was and what they might enjoy. What the story wants from you is not your knowledge, but your curiosity. And what I want is... Not somebody who's an expert already, but somebody who is curious. There's Easter eggs in what I wrote, of course. That's fine, but there are Easter eggs. It is supposed to be like, here's my perspective. Here is a guide. Here is what your perspective might be. So you kind of have to drink from the fire hose of reading 27,000 plus comics. How do you then take every Marvel comic and sit down to structure this book how would you describe the structure of it and what story were you looking to tell once you had all of that knowledge? So the structure of the book is that there's a few chapters of like, okay, here's the thing I was doing. Here's how I did it. Here is how this book is structured. Here is how it's put together. Here is how to read comics if you're new to them or returning to them. Here are some of the weird kind of conventions of how this stuff works. That said, 
you can really go in anywhere. We're not going to start at the beginning. We're going to go in from a particular story that is a vantage point on some others, but that's not the starting point. And one thing I say a couple times is like this works differently from most guidebooks. You have to stray from the path. You cannot follow this as an instruction manual. If something interests you, go follow it. If something is not really interesting, you skip over it. Then what I've got is a bunch of chapters that are about specific characters or series or teams or events or whatever, taking kind of a big overhead view of them sometimes, like here is 60 years of the Spider-Man story, or here is an overarching view of Shang-Chi and the Shang-Chi story. And some of them are like, okay, here's a really specific thing. Here's Let's talk about Dark Rain in 2009. Between those, there are little chapters that are kind of fun cross-sections of other sorts of things. Let's talk about monsters. Let's talk about what happened in one particular month when a whole bunch of comics first kind of connected to each other in a particular way for the first time. Let's talk about pop music inside the Marvel Universe. And then at the end, there's kind of a personal chapter about how this project started and my relationship with my kid and bonding with him over comics. And then after that, there's another thing which I think some readers thought that this book was going to be, which is trying to do a plot summary of the entire Marvel story in 22 pages. It leaves out a lot. That's fine. But just trying to figure out what the big themes are for every kind of big chunk of the Marvel story, what the shape of the continents look like from space, pretty much. That's basically what it is. There's also a really helpful FAQ chapter in the book. How did you come upon these specific questions to sort of shape that FAQ? Because I thought when looking at the book, and I think for the person you're targeting, someone who's curious, to me, I'm like, this is a great starting chapter. Oh, this is a great starting chapter. Oh, this is a great way. Like, there's so many great entry points into it, and I thought really helpful, which I think is a benefit to the way anyone can sort of pick this book up, sort of like the way anyone can pick up a comic. But for the FAQ, where were some of those questions coming into you from? So some of those questions in the FAQ were questions I have seen asked a bunch online, you know, Reddit and discussion groups online, just people saying like, okay, I'm new to comics, please don't judge me, but I really don't understand. Like, those are questions, great, answer them. Nobody's judging you, you're new. Welcome, come on in, it's nice here. I also asked a bunch of my friends who were pretty new to comics, like, what do you want to know? What are the things that are perplexing to you or were perplexing at the beginning? And one of my best friends owns a comic store here in Portland, Oregon, books with pictures, like my favorite comic store. And I asked her, when you have people coming into the store, what are the questions that they ask you about stuff that people take for granted? And that helped a lot. There's no shortage of questions when you look at this universe. But one of the first issues you kind of dig into is Fantastic 451, This Man, This Monster, which obviously is like a Lee Kirby classic. But what makes it so special both as a comic and as a focal point for the book? It's a really beautiful story. It does pretty much everything that the first decade of Marvel does well. In one 20-page package, which makes it a nice point, it has that beautiful, beautiful Jack Kirby photo collage image in the middle of Reed Richards floating in the negative zone and saying, uh, in fact, I'm going to quote it, I've done it. I'm drifting into a world of limitless dimensions. It's the crossroads of infinity, the junction to everywhere. And that is such a fantastic phrase. It's a suggestion like, yeah, okay, you can go anywhere from here. There's not a particular direction. And that phrase actually comes up again in an issue of The Ultimates that I quote at the very, very end of the book. It's Al Ewing quoting the Junction to Anywhere, the maker of the Gateway to Infinity. Like That is a particular turn of phrase that stuck around, that resonates over half a century later. I love it. That first chapter of really diving into some of the characters and the stories of FF, were there any particular FF stories that you were new to that surprised you or you you fell in love with in your reading? I think we all have our favorite FF runs and favorite periods, but was there something for you? Because the FF, maybe never the highest selling comic that we've ever had, but there's something very special and important and wonderful about Marvel's first family. Yeah, there were a lot of chunks of FF that I'd never read before. There were some chunks of Lee and Kirby stuff that I had never read and like 
especially some of the annuals, are just so fantastically interesting and fun and beautifully constructed and beautifully kind of constructed jerry-rigged on the fly. I had actually not read the Jonathan Hickman FF before I started working on the book. And I'd read all this adventure stuff, but I'd somehow missed his FF. And that is so beautiful and so thoughtful and dives so deep into the mythology. There were chunks of the Walter Simonson period that I hadn't read before. And it's so short, but it's so much fun. And it's so clever and it's so beautiful. And like, that's where the Time Variance Authority comes from. Like, it's just crammed with ideas. There's so much in the book. I mean, there's so many characters and ideas and things to follow. And in the book, there's a chapter that's largely dedicated to Shang-Chi comics. Were you at all influenced by knowing that there would be a Marvel Studios film on the way at some point? Or was that just from pure love of the character? That was pure love of that. When I started writing that chapter, the first thing in my first draft is there will never be a Shang-Chi movie. (gasps) There will never be a (laughs) Shang-Chi game. There will never be a Shang-Chi TV show. And of course, now, like two months ago, I bought the Shang-Chi Little Golden Book. (laughs) Oh, there's a Little Golden Book? There is a Shang-Chi Little Golden Book. And not just that, but there is a page that has like Clive Reston and Blackjack Tar and Leika Wu in it, like the supporting characters from the 70s, 80s incarnation. Wow. Yeah. It's a Shang-Chi Little Book. I got to buy that for the kid. It's amazing. I've always loved that comic. And one thing that when I was reading really engaged me is... It's so good. Master of Kung Fu is amazing and also unbelievably problematic. Like there is stuff that would not fly now in every single issue of that comic. And it's rough going and it's amazing. And you have to wrestle with it. And I love wrestling with stuff. I love wrestling with stuff that is problematic, but not completely off-putting. Although it can be completely off-putting, but it's also one of the absolute highlights of its decade of comics. And the key to that ended up being, for me, noticing what was going on in the letter columns. Because the people who were writing to Master of Kung Fu, first of all, so many of them are names that went on to be people in comics. They're people who went on to write and edit and draw comics. Like, these were the people who were like, this is a series, this is amazing. And then there are people who were like, writing and saying, like, I'm really invested in this comic. I'm really interested in it. And there are some choices in it that I'm really having a hard time with, like the fact that the villainous father character is literally Fu Manchu. That's a problem right there. The coloring of the early ones, there were Asian characters who were colored, you know, like, bright yellow or pale yellow or, in Shang-Chi's case, orange. And people wrote in and were like, okay, this is not okay. I want you to talk about this. And these letters were printed in the comic itself. And Doug Mensch, who was the writer, was responding to them. And there was a dialogue. And they listened to each other. And the comic changed and got better. Not always as immediately as you would hope, but they were really listening. And they wanted to do better. And they did. And it's fantastically smart and interesting and rich and weird. There is no other comic that is like it. Yeah, weird is a, is a good word for it. Another thing that I noticed is there's a little bit of political discussion here and there. There's a chapter about presidents. There's stuff all throughout. But I don't know. I saw it today on Twitter where someone was like, comics are too political these days. And I'm just like, are you mad? What do you say, Douglas, what would you say to someone who says something like <laughs> comics are too political these days? Politics are baked into the superhero concept from the very, very beginning. The first issue of Captain America, Captain America is punching out Hitler on the cover. That comic was published in December 1940, a year before Pearl Harbor, a year before the U.S. entered World War II. Captain America was created by two Jewish New York artists, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, specifically as a political argument to get the U.S. into This war that was not universally acknowledged as a good idea at the time. That's there from the get-go. Bunch of characters have strong, strong political stuff baked into them. There's a couple chapters that did not make the book. I wrote like twice as much for this book as went in there. I had this whole thing about Iron Man as a representative of what Dwight Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex from the beginning. That is who he is. He is an arms manufacturer who is in bed with the U.S. government. 
and he's the hero, and he's the protagonist, and we generally feel some sympathy for him and sometimes a lot of sympathy for him. But at every turn, Iron Man comics are about how do we feel right now about the military-industrial complex? How do we feel about the war machine? Another phrase that is associated with Iron Man a little later on. And that's there from the beginning. It's there in the stories in the 60s where he's going to Vietnam. It's there in the stories in the 70s where there are students protesting at the Stark Industries plant. And there's briefly a Kent State kind of plot where four protesters are killed. And then the next issue is like, oh, four protesters were injured and they were even thought killed for a little while. That got walked back real fast. That's true in the 80s when David Michelinie is writing the Centurion story, which is this amazing story about corporate interests intersecting with national defense. That is true in the 1990s when Kurt Busiek is writing, effectively Tony Stark is inventing like Netscape Navigator ripoffs and more or less invents the CAPTCHA actually. That's true in the 2000s when we get, uh, it's not so much about arms anymore so much as it is about surveillance and there are cameras everywhere. And then Matt Fraction starts writing it and it's really about the surveillance state as an operation of military industrial technology. Like that's baked into Iron Man all the way. It has never not been political. That's kind of what's interesting about it. Yeah, it's so interesting. I think people often witness the Tony Stark sort of flair and they're like, no, he's a handsome guy who is good with ladies, but <laughs> there's there's so much more to him. But you know, I notice you just rattle off creator names off the tip of your tongue. They're like in the front of your brain all the time. And you know, there are the creators that we talk about all the time, but were there any particular sort of unsung or underappreciated creators that you came across as you were reading that you were like, why don't we talk about Bob Joe Bob anymore? There were a lot of those. And to some extent, they're all like, oh, but they're big names to me because the river is famous to the fish, as they say. But there were a few people like Patey, who spent most of her time at Marvel as Patey Cockrum. She mostly worked in production. She drew a few comics. The first comic she drew was an issue of a romance comic. And it's a story called I Can't Love Anyone. And it's amazing. It is just like blasting off the page. And it's gorgeous. And at the end of it, there's a note saying like, hey, do you like this kind of story? Because Patey writes us letters a lot and they were illustrated letters and they were really cool looking. And we thought, let's ask her to draw a story. Let us know what you think. And there it is. And she's amazing. Liam Sharp, he did a Man Thing series in 1998 that is absolutely gorgeous. And it's never been reprinted. It's not on Marvel Unlimited, but it's worth digging up. It's exquisite. Billy Graham, Billy Graham's fantastic. He did a bunch of Black Panther stories in the mid-70s. And they're so nice looking. They're so cool. So yeah, lots of names. I love it. I love it. One of the things, and you mentioned it briefly a little bit ago, is I really dug your deep dive into the comics of March 1965. That chapter, I thought that was really cool. I was like, I love talking about this. Can you explain that chapter and sort of that deep dive a little bit? Yeah, so Marvel's comics from the beginning had been at least a little bit connected to each other. The first time they kind of crossed over with each other was just a couple months after Fantastic Four, number one. Not in superhero comics, but in issues of Patsy Walker and Patsy and Hebe and Linda Carter, student nurse, and Millie the Model, and Kathy the Teenage Tornado. Like, there are things in those comics about teenage girls and young professional women where they're kind of affecting each other. But where it really comes in in the superhero stories is March 1965, where the core of it is four stories that were drawn and probably plotted by Jack Kirby, where each one has immediate consequences in the other. Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch quit the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants in X-Men, in the issue of Avengers that comes out the next week, they find out that there's vacancies in the Avengers and they join that team right after Hawkeye does. And then there's some stuff involving Journey into Mystery, which was the Thor series, where there's a kid who's part of Rick Jones's Teen Brigade, which had been introduced in Hulk, who is trying to contact the Avengers, but they're not there because they're busy with all the stuff that's going on with their lineup change. And then he tries to contact the Fantastic Four, but they're gone because of what's been going on in their title. And then he sees Daredevil swinging past his window and tries to get his attention, but Daredevil can't be bothered because he's off chasing the Submariner in that 
current issue of Daredevil that was drawn by Wally Wood. And you don't need to read more than one of those stories to see what's happening in that story. But if you read them together, all the pieces kind of click together in an absolutely amazing, mind-blowing way that was not something that any kind of art or entertainment had been able to do before then. It was a special thing. It was a new thing. And it was a Marvel thing. It's super cool. I'll plug our other show that Douglas, you and I did. We talk about another great, very Marvel-y, crossover-y type thing with an issue of Fantastic Four. And then like a decade later, it's an issue of Doctor Strange. And then after that, another bunch of years later, it's an issue of Avengers West Coast and how they all sort of tie together. I love that stuff. Ryan is referring to Marvel's pull list episode... 188 from November 23rd, 2021. For those of you who want to go check it out. Yeah. I wanted to ask real quick, because you, you mentioned really starting in 1961, but there's mentions of the Timely Era stuff and, and Captain America comics, number one and stuff. Have you read, I may not fall into the purview of your mission here, but have you read the crossover with Human Torch and Submariner from the 40s, where yes. they like fight across their two books? It's one of my absolute favorites when they get to the zoo and there's all kinds of wackiness and they, <laughs> they go back and forth. That stuff, I will go back and reread those stories every like couple of years because they, they're wonderful. Yeah, I love that story. There is such an incredible energy to it of the people who were doing those features, like working together. Like I think they were actually in a room together for a weekend or more, just like jamming out this story together. And it has that wonderful spontaneous energy to it so great something that occurs to me listening to you talk about all these comics and also something you said earlier you know obviously marvel unlimited is a wonderful asset there's thousands and thousands of comics there but there are also some things that maybe haven't been added yet you know there are gaps that everybody wants to fill how do you fill those gaps where do you go besides buying lots of comics i've written some books about comics as well and this is something i constantly struggle with I haunt back issue bins. I am a bin digger. I've also been buying comics for a long time. Like, ROM was a big part of my reading project. <laughs> like, that stuff is out of print and it's not going to be back in print anytime soon. There were a bunch of licensed comics with characters to whom Marvel no longer has the license. That's haunting back issue bins. That is asking friends who have copies. Comics is a community, comics are a social medium. There's so many friends I have through comics, and a lot of times I was like, hey, do you happen to have copies? Can I read those? Can I trade you? <laughs> I also, I, I have to say that the final chapter in the book, Passing It Along, might be my favorite. Got me a little misty-eyed, and it was really sweet to hear about you're doing this journey alongside your son. There was something so genuine and pure, and I love how you describe your son and his, like what he really honed in on and, and how that brought you closer together. I think about that a lot because I have a two-year-old and she's got comics everywhere and she likes the characters and stuff. And I just can't wait to be able to sit there and read actual comics with her, not just the sort of more simplified storybooks and whatnot. It's really fun. How much fun was it for you to do this alongside your son? I mean, getting to do it alongside my son is kind of the reason I did it. I am so, so fortunate that it's a thing that he liked that it's a thing that we could bond over and that's kind of what inspired me because he told me at some point like oh yeah i want to read all the marvel comics dad in continuity order not in chronological order i want to read the order that it happened to the characters like okay this will last a week and then we read for a week and then more than a week and then a couple months later he'd read pretty much everything up to about 1967. He was like, okay, dad, you know, I think I'm more interested in the modern crossover era. All right, let's go look at Civil War. Uh, and that became our thing. And, you know, it's six years later now, and we still read an issue together every night, me and my wife and him. That is so sweet. I do also, I wanted to bring up the appendix that you mentioned. You know, you said the 22-page the story of the plot of the Marvel Universe, because I thought, as I mentioned earlier, there's like a bunch of really fun starting points in the book if someone were just to open up into a random chapter. And this is the appendix, so it's not even a proper numbered chapter. It's right at the end. But to get this grasp of the story of the Marvel Universe, what was your brain doing to distill this down into a few eras 
and a short period of time. How much work did you have to put into to get this to the point where it is in the book, which I think is really well done and really well told and succinct and obviously doesn't cover everything, but it's pretty damn good. So that chapter was originally much longer. It was a big chunk of the book, and I ended up cutting it down a lot and distilling it into one short section. And once I had done a bunch of the reading, it started to seem like there were periods to the story. There were themes that emerged in particular periods. There were some dividing points where it seemed like there was a moment where everything about it changed. And I thought that was really interesting because that was not deliberate with maybe the exception of the end of the 2015 Secret Wars, which is like deliberately like, okay, we're relaunching everything at this point. Those division points were not put there by anybody. Those themes were not agreed on by anybody, but they happened. They just grew, as they say. And seeing that happen was super, super interesting. And it was something that I could only see because I had read so much already. You know, there are things like there's a moment in 1986 or 1987 where everything in the story suddenly dives down and goes underground. Stuff is happening under the surface of the earth. Some stuff is happening in the tunnels. Stuff is happening at the bottom of the sea. Like it's all below the surface. And then it all comes bursting out again a couple of years later. That's not deliberate. That is not something that writers and editors got together and thought, okay, this is going to be the shape of the story. But that is something that the culture that all of those writers and editors and artists were living in suggested to them. And they all felt it at the same time. And that's amazing. That made it really fun to do. The origin of that section was actually uh, about four or five years ago, I got invited to give a talk about all this Marvel reading I was doing at my favorite comic book store, Books with Pictures. And I was like, okay, let's do a history of Marvel Universe in 45 minutes. And let's boil it down to not even the big events, but the shape of things, the fears that come up in terms of what the protagonists are struggling against, what kinds of stories are being told. You have so much in your brain. I wish I could teleport it all into my brain so I could know all that you know. But I have to ask, what is your favorite all-time Spider-Man story? Ooh, that is a good question. I'm going to give you one real answer and then one super dark horse answer. Favorite Spider-Man story ever? I'm going to say Amazing Spider-Man 801. The final dance slot issue drawn by Marcus Martin. It is everything that we love about Spider-Man and Spider-Man is barely in it but it is about the effect that he has had on the lives he has just barely touched Dan Slott speaks the first 40 Spider-Man stories as a native language he knows that stuff cold there are all sorts of quotes and paraphrases and inversions and allusions to that stuff just as the fabric of his spider-man stories and that is you know his crowning last one the one he was saving for last and it's just about that world and that worldview and the way it has affected things and it's tremendously affecting. It is kind of a heartstring tugger. It is not a get out your handkerchief story, but it's like, this is what is really special about this character. My Dark Horse pick is not even an issue of a Spider-Man comic. It is Guardians Team Up number nine from 2015, which is a Spider-Man and Star-Lord team up. It is written and drawn by Javier Polito and colored by him. And it is just the most visually gorgeous Spider-Man story that I know of. Douglas, thank you for chatting about Marvel. Six years, you've been in the Marvels all around and you're, you're still in it and we appreciate you. And the book is great. The book is wonderful. Again, the book is called All of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told, available now. Douglas Wolk, thank you so, so much. Thank you so much.
big thanks to Douglas for coming on the show. I highly suggest if you got some downtime during the holiday season, get a copy of all the Marvels from your library or from wherever you get your books and sit down, have a read, and then dig into some of the stories he talks about. It's really cool. You can check out pretty much everything he mentions on Marvel Unlimited. Well, next week, we are going to have a very, very special dramatic reading Christmas Eve of a comic book carol, a.k.a. our favorite Christmas issues, read with some very special guests from Marvel and beyond. So we want to know, what is your favorite Marvel holiday story for our question of the week? You can tweet us your answers using the hashtag ThisWeekInMarvel, email them to TwinPodcastsOfMarvel.com, or you can uh, send us a message on our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash ThisWeekInMarvel. And of course, please tell us if it is okay to read so we can read it here on the show. When we were kids, there were Marvel holiday specials that they released like 64, 96 page issues. And there's one with an Arthur Adams cover that has Santa being chased by all the Marvel heroes. It's got like 10 different stories in there. It's really, really good. It's a lot of fun. That one always sticks in my head. But of course, my favorite is the one that I wrote, which is a scroll story called Last Christmas. I was able to write a scroll story named after a Wham! song and have it published by Marvel Comics, which is pretty cool. That is from our Marvel Digital Holiday Special in 2008. What about you, Lorraine? I think my favorite classic story is probably the one from Marvel Holiday Special from around 2005, in which Ultron pretends to be Santa. It's called, Yes, Virginia, There Is a Santatron. And it's part of one of those bigger collections. It's written by Jeff Parker with art by Riley Brown. And it's a ding-dang delight. Ultron invades Avengers Mansion. He wreaks havoc. He's also Santa Claus. It's just a good time. Good times indeed. Go check all that out and let us know what you think, what your favorite Marvel holiday story is. You can tweet your answers using hashtag ThisWeekInMarvel. Email them to TwimPodcast.Marvel.com or send a message to our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash this week in Marvel. Please, of course, make sure to tell us it is okay to read on the show. All right. Our question of the week last week was, what is your all-time favorite single issue of a Marvel comic book? And we have some great answers here. Let's kick it off with friend of the show, Karis Pollard, at Karis Pollard, which says, how on earth do you pick one favorite comic issue? But if you forced me, I'm going to say Unstoppable Wasp number eight. It was one of the first comic series I read, and that issue where Nadia chooses her name was the light bulb moment where I knew comics weren't just cool and action and powers, great though all that is, but were also family and heart and all the other things stories can be. Oh, that's so nice. I That series absolutely made me cry in a gross way and i loved it <laughs> so good martin g at oh my g says definitely fantastic four number 243 because quote need we say more which is on the cover blew my mind in sixth grade and it still does plus the small time super folk banter is my fave Mwah. chef's kiss also need to redraw this cover in my style great issue ff and some superheroes versus Galactus, it rules. Yeah. All right, next up we have Mary Van Kugel at Folkloristicist. I said that perfectly. <laughs> and they said, tough one, but right now I will go with the Gwynpool Holiday Special from 2015. I have a thing for anthologies, especially the holiday ones. And this is the one that made me fall in love with She-Hulk and, of course, Gwynpool. Um, that is a really fun one. I'm fairly certain that is the one where Santa gets beat. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Tarkis at Nitro Circus 10 says, God of Thunder number 12. This is the perfect Thor story. While it was in the infancy of Jason Aaron's run, it is everything Thor should be. The Nick Klein art transcends the pages. You can hear the thunder and the emotion as you see Thor from Avenger to King. Look, I will champion any issue of Thor written by Jason Aaron and amazing art by Nick Klein. Yes, yes, yes. All right. We have Mr. K at Rattan's 8 Mike Dalek. Tough choice. Think it's fantastic for issue 285. Poor kid idolizes the torch and then sets himself on fire trying to be him. Though kid who collects Spider-Man would have won if it was a full issue. There are a few Paul Jenkins Spidey issues too, though. 
wow, a soft spot in your heart for kids <laughs> getting bad stuff. Pert underscore Abacus says, Power Pack number 21. Nothing earth shattering, no first appearances, never going to be in an MCU movie, just a sweet done in one issue that I read as a kid, then reread with my kids. I think Power Pack is a great choice, underrated for sure, and I love that it's a it's a book that you read as a kid and can reread with your kids. Now that's really something really, really special. And speaking of kids, Amy at Spoolu Flies said a babies versus x babies every hero is more exciting when instead of being an angsty adult they're either a kid or a stuffed animal that is just science you know what amy you're not wrong a babies versus x babies is the best uh yeah speaking of x babies ryan hill at joseph ryan hill says 64 pages of arthur adams goodness X-Men in the Outback era fighting giant robots and an X-Babies backup story. It is perfect. Um, He's talking about the X-Men annual with part of the High Evolutionary War, which when I was younger, I remember reading this over and over and over again. It's got an amazing (laughs) cover, incredible art. It's got the freaking X-Babies in like all their 80s glory. Yes, 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 yes. I love this issue so much. Next up, we've got Curtis Herons at Curtis Herons, which says X-Men number 137, loyalty in the face of desperate odds only to have to switch sides and take down the person they love in order to prevent her from destroying the universe. Epic. Don't mess with Phoenix, you know? Hell yeah. Chulo AA says amazing Spider-Man number 479, where Aunt May confronts Peter about being Spider-Man. Real heartfelt issue. Heck yeah. Next up, Alec Hodgson at Alex J. Hodgson says Superior Spider-Man number nine by Dan Slott. It's a masterpiece that takes you on an emotional roller coaster. It was so good. I had to read it four times in a row. Man, I do love that series. I have to say it's really phenomenal. So good. We have one here from Luis GM at GM Luis. Probably House of X number four. When the X-Men faced Orcus, and although they accomplished their mission, they perished in the battle. That made me very emotional. Also, Pepe Larraz and Marte Gracia were stunning on art. Hell yeah. No lies. No lies whatsoever. We've got a Facebook message in here from Damon Bozer, who says, My favorite single issue of a Marvel comic is Spectacular Spider-Man number 14 from 2003, where Spider-Man saves a disabled man from Morbius. It holds a special place for me because the man in the story has the same disability that I do. I love that answer, Damon, because it's another reminder that it's so important and so meaningful to see ourselves represented in the stories, however it works. You know, whether it's a supporting character, a a hero... Seeing ourselves in these stories resonates so much and is something important for the folks who make these to think about. I'm glad that connected for you and that resonates for you. Also, shout out to Rafael Michelangelo Perry over on Facebook who sent some messages to us. So thanks for the note. And there we have it. Another week, another Spider-Man. Okay, so here's what happens in Spider-Man No Way Home. All right, Lorraine. So it I opens will up... mess you up, Panagos. Fine. <laughs> this episode of This Week in Marvel is produced by Zachary Goldberg, Isabel Robertson, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And special thanks to everyone who doesn't spoil Spider-Man No Way Home. You are the true heroes of the internet, and you deserve praise, maybe a prize, maybe a statue, maybe your name up in lights, a tribute in the Daily Bugle, because thank you for not spoiling Spider-Man. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. This is Marvel. Your universe. Beep boop 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 ring 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 beep boop 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 ring 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 beep boop 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 ring 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 beep boop 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 ring ring ring